Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Glorious, wonderful Lord's Day to each of you here this morning, and this is Memorial Day weekend. I do trust you'll be able to spend some wonderful time relaxing and enjoying our beautiful California sunshine, but also, let's certainly take a moment to give thanks to God for the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans, freedoms that have not been paid for by the trillions of our national treasury, but by the blood and sweat and agony of those who we honor, those who paid the ultimate price so that we could have freedom. We think of their selflessness and their heroism. Let us remind ourselves of the words of our Savior. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so today we say thank you, heroes, and of course, most of all, thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Let's give our praise this morning. Praise the Lord. Amen. The Commandments of Christ, that's our series. Today's edition is Five Commandments for Discerning Christians. Now, did you know that there are some very important things that you need to know that you will never actually learn in school? Did I just hear a loud erupting from all of our school-age children? (laughs) Yes! Praise the Lord, they say. Now, that is not to say that formal education is not important. But there are some things that you'll just never figure out intellectually by simply gathering information. We are blessed in our area to have a rich heritage of indigenous people in our area of San Joaquin Valley, the Yokuts people. They were primarily hunters and gatherers, very proficient fishers and collectors of acorns for their meals. But you know in life there are some things that you can't just hunt for or gather and expect to have a good life. There are some things some truths that no matter how hard you hunt or gather, you're just not going to get there. These are matters that we will never, ever know until we put our intellectual pride in the dust and just let God, the Holy Spirit, speak to us through the precious Word of God. This is called discernment. Discerning the truth has never been more important. Let me say that again. Having discernment has never been more important for God's people. We are living in a day of technological abuse, deep fakes, artificial intelligence on a level in the next months and years that we can't even imagine. Who knows what is true? I tell you who knows what is true, and that are people with biblical discernment. 
And you have biblical discernment. It's not about just what you read or what education says. You have something. You have discernment. Now today we have the spineless who are afraid of truth. We have some with laziness who accept half-truth. And then, of course, there are many today, sadly, who have so much smugness, and they think they know all truth. But I pray that this morning each of us will have enough humility to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to lead us into a life of discernment. Now, how does one measure true maturity? Well, I will tell you that it's not just a function of how old you are. Because society is dominated by multiple generations of people who are maybe older in age, but frankly, quite immature. Because maturity is not just a number. It is not simply a question of how long a person lives, but rather how long a person has lived wisely. Wisdom is the principal thing. Frankly, it means not just even how long you've been to church. There are people who've been to church for decades, but frankly, still lack biblical and godly discernment. Things like fickle emotionalism, foolish worldliness, or shallow spirituality seems to characterize the church today. We live in such a deceptive age, and it's getting worse. Friends, we cannot simply go with the flow. There may have been a time in America's history when the moral majority basically lined up with biblical values, but every year we live, that so-called moral majority actually moves to the left of Bible-based values. And I must say, as churches even, in too many cases, our failure to discern has caused incredible confusion between true biblical values and the cultural confusion that's out there. The question then that comes to us today is how do we develop this culture of true biblical discernment? What needs to happen is that each one in the church, every one of us, individuals, men and women of God, would get a biblical perspective. How do we do that? Well, this morning we're going to give you five duties for discernment or five commandments for discerning Christians. Yes, friends, it appears that the world is undercutting the church of God, but with wisdom we can make a difference. It seems there was a barber in a small local town. He'd been the only barber in that town for years. Everybody went to that barber to get their hair cut. Then one day a big hair salon franchise came into town, opened up shop, advertised all haircuts, $3. Slowly, as you might imagine, the barber's business began to dwindle. He just couldn't compete. In a last-ditch effort to save his business, he hired a business consultant. The consultant spent a day pouring over his books, asking a lot of questions. At the end of the day... The barber asked the consultant, so what do you think? Should I close up? Where do you think I'm at here? The consultant said, well, not yet. I'll be back tomorrow. The next day, the consultant showed up with a huge banner, and he hung it in front of the barber shop. And here's what the banner said. We fix 
$3 haircuts. <laughs> and yes, it may seem like at times the church can't compete with this old slick world. But I'll tell you something this morning. God's ways, they fix $3 haircuts. God does have the answer. And so this morning, I hope you'll listen. And uh, I hope you'll get your steel-toed boots on because we're going to get a little direct today, a little straightforward. So forgive up. Give you a little warning up front. You need to get your pacifier out. So, uh, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you. I praise you. Uh, Lord. How could we not be filled with so much gratefulness? this day. This God first nation of ours. The goodness that you've done in our own lives, Lord, I've been spit on, cut on, and pushed on, broken down. Yet, Lord, I thank you. Only by your mercy we stand here this morning. Thank you, Jesus. And now, Lord, these, for some reason, Holy Spirit, I know you want me to preach this message both this morning and tonight. I just know it. And Lord, I know that being human, we're not going to always like what we hear. But Lord, would you help this week? Would you answer the prayer I've been praying for days? To get through biblical discernment. They would move to the next level in their Christian life. Thank you, Jesus your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What is biblical discernment? If we were to define it and you were writing it down, like you should, or imprint it in your mind, or get the podcast, the simplest definition would be be really nothing more than this, the ability to decide between truth and error. Sounds easy enough, but that's not always that easy. It is the well-honed ability to make careful distinctions about truth. And it's one of the most important reasons why God gave us so many verses in this big old thick book. Because He gave us an answer for any situation we'd ever meet. He gave us wisdom to discern between truth and error. There are hundreds of commands in the Old Testament. Most people are aware of that. Most people, of course, know the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. But there are hundreds of wonderful, wonderful commandments. When interpreted correctly and applied wisely, are a gold standard for the Christian life. Many people don't realize, however, that there are many commands in the New Testament. In fact, there are about 900 of them. And that's the commands we're going through in our current series. We're entitled it, The Commands of Christ, and that they're in the New Testament, that Christ is front and center. Now, unfortunately, in today's age, many Christians, not I don't know if I'll say the word most, but I probably could, honestly. Stats would, I think, uh, 
validate that sentiment. Most Christians stumble when it comes to true biblical discernment. Many in the church, even evangelical churches, exhibit really a little, very little ability to measure what is truth and error. Christian author Ruth E. Van Rieken said, Our human reasoning alone isn't enough to discern truth and error. The best protection against deception is to know God's revealed truth, the Bible. And I agree. As a result, we often, and to be fair, it's often unwittingly, we engage in all kinds of unbiblical decision-making and behavior. And in short, we just aren't able to have the shield that God's given us against the arrows, the flaming arrows of the devil. The significance then of what we're going to talk about today is huge because these are five truths that God says, now don't do it. You've gone from the be commands to the be not commands. These are a little more forceful. These are absolutely vital to your spiritual health, just like certain things are just necessary for your physical health. These are five things that you just must not do. And so God warns us so that we can have biblical discernment. So I hope that you'll listen closely. Number one, don't be childlike in your thinking about doctrine. Now we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20. The loving Apostle Paul pleads to his beloved brothers and sisters in Corinth. Brethren, be not, there's that command, be not. Children, don't be children in understanding. How be it, yes, be children in malice, that is, be childlike or unknowing when it comes to evil things. Yeah, in, when it comes to evil things, yeah, I hope you're childlike. I hope you don't understand it and know about it. But in understanding, be men. Be not childish in your thinking. Now, those that are original language scholars say this is, the sentence construction here is what's called a negative imperative. Meaning, not, if you get around to it, make this part of your life. No, it's right now, stop. Don't do it again. <laughs> kind of like parents, you know, they say, stop that. It's not, you know, sometimes it's like, no, you need to stop that right now. Now, what is the context of this passage so we get a little bit of idea what he's talking about? The context is really manifestations of uh, that were going on in the services, things that were happening kind of and in specifically he was referring to the idea of what the King James Version calls as tongues. The word tongues in the King James is the Greek word glossa, which just simply means languages. You say, what is tongues? Well, just a, a simple definition without going into a long uh, explanation would be it is simply praising God or witnessing for God in a language you've never learned. That would be the most simple definition. Praising God or witnessing for God in a language you've never learned. 
It does not mean when it says unknown that nobody knows. It just means it's unknown to you, but it's not unknown to others. You'd say, well, how do you come up with that definition? Well, it's very clear. There were three times in the book of Acts when they spoke in tongues, languages. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. Here's one of them, Acts chapter 2, verse 8. And here is clear evidence that they heard in their own language. And here, and how hear we every man in our own glossa, our own language, wherein we were born. So the place we were born, they were Jewish people that had come to Jerusalem, but they hailed from all over the Middle East. And so when you read the passage there in Acts chapter 2, there was at least 16 different foreign languages. They may have been Jewish by faith, even by ethnicity, but uh, they were from a different language group. There was a remarkable moment in history when, at this particular moment, uh, God just moved in such a great way, the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in languages they'd never heard. The desire was so great to be able to communicate with these people that God just gave them a gift of the Holy Spirit. It was just amazing. Unfortunately, several years post-day of Pentecost, people had begun to get a little bit crazy about these manifestations. They'd become more interested in the sensation than the intention. They were failing in what has really been a problem, especially even in the church today, and that is of religious emotionalism. Now, I am not referring to emotion. I mean, where would we humans be if we never had any wonderful emotion? We'd be like Mr. Spock on that old Star Trek. <laughs> you remember him? I mean, his dog died or whatever. Quite illogical, he said. Frankly, some of you are here today, and uh, you can hear a wonderful worship song or truth, and you get so blessed, and yet nobody around you would ever know it. <laughs> You sit there like a Baptist cadaver or something. I mean, I don't know. I don't get it. Emotion is not bad. God created us in His image. And the Bible's clear. God has love. He has joy. He has happiness. Yes, He has anger and disappointment. But sometimes our emotions are not grounded in truth. They are false emotions. They are based on false premises. And that's really what the apostle was cautioning here. He was saying, don't be swept away into religious emotionalism. For example, some people determine what church is good for them by their feelings. Just how I feel about it. Wow, that is such a childish way to choose a church. I mean, just be honest with me. <laughs> that's so short-sighted. We have a tendency, some really like something exciting, you know, they want something that really gets them going. Others, they want quiet and contemplative, you know, candles and cantatas. And, but using our emotions to choose the church is just a very, very ineffective way. And that's what Paul is cautioning about here. He is saying, do not just make decisions on how you feel. I mean, if that's the case, you may wake up on a Sunday and say, ah, well, I don't know, I'm just not feeling church today. <laughs> it really 
doesn't matter in my spirit whether I'm feeling it or not. We are doing it by what God says is the right thing to do. Our emotions can betray us. For example, we can be all worried emotionally. I mean, oh, I'm so upset. I'm just all. Come to find out, nothing was wrong or nothing. It wasn't. It was just silly. And all along, God has been saying, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Had we followed God's word instead of our emotions, we would have not given in to emotionalism. Emotions are subjective. They are relative to each person's sex, their age, their physical condition. I mean, for me, I know when I get feeling bad, I can watch something on TV. I mean, it can just be a little dog playing with his puppy or something. I'm like, and I don't know what, my physical condition just really makes me emotional. The fact of the matter is, folks, emotions are subjective. Truth is objective. Some care wisely about a church's doctrinal stance or philosophy of ministry or the integrity of their pastors and leaders. Others really don't care. They just like, hey, whatever kind of makes me feel good, that's the church I'm going to. Folks, if God allowed Christians to seek truth through the wealth, the way that they felt at a particular time, Christianity would be a mass confusion. Emotions can lead us to do exactly the opposite of what God wants us to do. Because sometimes with something that we just really want, and we'll just follow that like the big old red apple in the Garden of Eden. Eve and Adam had been forbidden to take of the fruit. But that high of taking that fruit, boy, that, that concept of, woo, boy, I mean, she was on a high that day. And it really wasn't a, this just a, she was had some spiritual connection to that. She felt like this was going to be the best thing for her spiritual life. But her emotions led her to disobey God. A believer's basis for making choices must center on truth, not emotion. Notice what he says back in this verse. He says, but in understanding be men, or in doctrine be men. The word men there is actually the Greek word teleos, which means adults or completed mature person. It is time to grow up. That's the point here. It is time to grow up in your spiritual thinking. It is time to deal with life with discernment. Before my beloved wife and I were engaged, I went wedding ring shopping. I had totally no idea about the whole diamond world, anything in the jewelry world for that matter. I began investigating. I did find out that diamonds are graded based on four different C's. And you have to be able to discern these four C's. The cut, the color, the clarity, and the carrot. There you go. To get a good diamond, you have to look at those four things. After I was done purchasing, I added a fifth C. Cost is the fifth C, I would add for sure. You heard about the guy who bought his wife a beautiful diamond ring, right? A friend of his said, I thought she wanted one of those sporty four-wheel drive vehicles. She did. But where am I going to find a fake Jeep? <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. All right, number two. 
The second commandment for discernment is don't be seduced by unacceptable friendships. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Now God warns there are going to be people that are going to be come into your life. They just do. They just they come into your life. You don't even ask for them always, but they just do. And they will be faith deniers. They will be Bible deniers. But strangely, they will be attractive to you. There's something about them. Maybe you're forced to be with them at work or something, or you're in some club or some sports thing or whatever, but you're, and you grow to sort of actually enjoy their company. God says, okay, all well and good, but here's the caution I want you to know. Do not be deceived. Do not let them seduce you. Do not let them in any way turn you because they have evil minds. Now, that doesn't mean especially, you know, like the most dirty things, but just evil, meaning unacceptable. The actual word means worthless. It's, it's worthless comparatively to Scripture. They have evil communications. That means their speeches, their company, their talking, the things they communicate with. Just do not be seduced by them. Don't go there. Because, here's the problem, it will corrupt good manners. The word manners there is morals. Strange, isn't it, that their evil thinking, that will they will communicate some way or somehow, they can't help it, it is going to get inside your little brain, and if you're not careful, it will corrupt your morals. Don't be deceived. Now, the word deceived there is a Greek word, planao. It is the same word that we get our English word for planet. The idea is a planet is a wandering body, a celestial body. You've heard the phrase, you know, uh, women are from Venus and men are from Mars. Well, basically, what Paul is saying here, if you're an undiscerning Christian, you're basically from Pluto. I mean, you are way out there. You're like a planet that's wandering. The idea is that of spiritual wandering. The powerful follower of Christ, the immortal Peter, seconded Paul's advice here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 25. He cautioned his fellow believers. He said, just remember where you come from. And he said, you were a wandering person, for you were as sheep going astray. There's that word again. You were wandering. You were like a wandering planet. Thank God you will return unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul, somebody who cares about you, gathered you and brought you into the fold. He loves you. Now back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The context of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, anybody that's gone through 1 Corinthians knows that chapter 15 is the famous resurrection chapter. People were influencing or trying to influence the believers that Well, it really is not true. They were seducing these fellow believers, or these believers, that there was really no literal resurrection. So they were in Corinth, this university city. Basically, 99% of the university professors said, no, that's, that's just garbage. There's just nothing more than fables. No way did a man rise from the dead. No way. All the business leaders, they didn't care. They were just about to... Bottom dollar. All the political leaders, no, nah, that's it's divisive to our country. No, nah, 
just don't go to that, to that Christianity stuff. Don't believe in that resurrection stuff. And then, of course, all the free thinkers were like, no, nah, we want to live how we want to live. And so every day, hour after hour, whether they went to school, whether they went to business, and not a whole lot of them like today, they were constantly being pressured by the evil thinking of these people. They would say, you are extremists, you're weird, you're believing in this strange, crazy stuff that this man rose from the dead, that's, that's ridiculous. So Paul said, okay, all well and good, but here's the problem. If you give in to their thinking, if you give in to their speeches, if you let their little truth or their little word bombs stick in your head, if you, if you do that, it is going to create bad morals in you. Now, some people say, oh, you know, it's just religious semantics. That's all it is. It's not. The fact of the matter is, and I hope you'll write this down, what one believes will affect how one behaves. What one believes about the Bible, what one believes about Christ, what one believes about truth will affect how he behaves. Here's why. Because if there's no resurrection, if there's no afterlife, if there's nothing beyond, then... Hedonism is the way to go. Eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, and that philosophy can only corrupt good morals. It will mess up your marriage. It will mess up your family. It will mess up your health. It will mess up everything. That kind of giving into that kind of philosophy. And that's what we have today in America. This eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you feel because we're only living for a while. You'd say, well, what is God calling us to do? Is he calling us just to stay away from him? No. Yes, we should interact with them. Evangelization is far different from assimilation. He's just saying don't get sucked in to the collective, as it were. Is that possible? Yes, very possible. We can embrace people without embracing their thinking. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5, I think it's is it 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So he said, now look, you don't company with them. Don't hang with them. Don't just spend all your life with fornicators, people involved in sexual sin. That's a wide, the word there is paneo, it's a wide spectrum of things. Now here's, but here's the qualification, verse 10. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. He said, if that was the case, then basically you'd have to go outside of the world. Because there is no way to conduct any kind of business without being interacting with people of this world. I mean, it's just impossible. The old saying is, ships are to be in the water, but the water is not supposed to be inside the ship. As you sail through life, make sure that you're not taking on any waters. Because here's what Paul said. He said, interacting with them in the wrong way will corrupt good manners. And you can be sure unbelievers can cause even the strongest Christians to waver in their faith. It is so easy, especially young people. They are so susceptible because they want to be uh, accepted. They want to be uh, approved. And there are many cases just, man, they just got to have that. I mean, consider for a few moments the situation we have right here today. 
here's a young person. They've come to church. Or they come to church. And they come to this place, nice, beautiful place, air-conditioned. They look up here and they see a, a man, a mature man, with a suit and a tie. And I'm speaking from a book that is thousands of years old. So we've already got some things going against them accepting. <laughs> Here's this mature man with a suit and tie on, speaking from an old, old book written in a foreign language about truths that are really quite countercultural. It really challenges our flesh. Very hard to compete with what they are faced with in their local college. A young college hip professor stands in front of them, having so many piercings on his face. He looks like he fell face first in a tackle box. And um, he looks up there and he says, now we need to think outside of the box. <laughs> he is telling them to feel what they feel. And he's super cool. I get it. And maybe he is cool. But I will tell you something. We need to get back to the place in America where we consider Bible-believing preachers super cool. They are the cool ones because they are lifting up the blessed Word of God. Christians must not be seduced, no matter what our age, young or old, by false teaching and a watered-down gospel. Number one, don't be childlike in your thinking about doctrine. Number two, don't be seduced by unacceptable friendships. Number three, don't be partners with a God rejecter. We were talking about obstacles that hinder good spiritual faith. He said, now, don't get so involved, and he's going to qualify that, with unbelievers that they it limits you from being your best. Actually, you could almost say, don't be mismated. Verse 14, be ye not. There it is. Don't stop it. He said, that's, the, that's what it means. Stop it. Stop being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So don't. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and communion with hath light with darkness? Verse 15. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath he that believeth in? Referring to Satan. He that believeth with an infidel. It's a metaphor here used based on Moses' practical and ceremonial imperative in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 10. Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. Now, I know people love to make fun of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, but there was a reason for this. Now, obviously, there's a practical reason, especially for the donkey and for the ox. They are not going to plow together very good, and so God was thinking of our animals. And God cares about our animals, and so should we. But this is not just a, a verse for animals. It's actually a great reminder that certain things just don't go together, and so you need to stay away from it. You can save yourself a lot of headache and a lot of problem, if you will. The clear inference here is that believers and unbelievers are so different in their thought process, in their ultimate goal, of course, their destiny, that's <laughs> sure. And you say, well, what level of interaction is God speaking about? Well, here in verses 14 and 15, he gives five words to explain the scope of the we're talking about. Because many people wonder, what does it mean to be yoked together? Well, let's go through these words. He explains them a little more. Number one is yoked. 
verse 14, he said, don't be yoked together with them. A yoke is pushing together, you know, and a plow together. There's a binding there. I think marital and business partnerships would probably be the most things he was referring to. And but let me hasten to say here, God is not saying that you should divorce your God-denying husband or wife. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, before whatever happens, just stay clear from that. Then there's the word fellowship in verse 14. Don't fellowship with them. I would suggest that this would mean compromised religious connections. There can be no fellowship. Two fellows in the same ship, there can be nobody going in the same direction. If you don't have a uh, unanimity of mind. Number three there is communion, verse 14, close friendship. Do you have communion or close friendship with God-denying people? Look, if someone denies Scripture, you just really couldn't call them a close friend. I mean, that would be a violation of Scripture. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be a friend or love them, but a close friend? Ah. And then verse 15, concord is the King James word. You know, people who work together in unethical or illegal or unbiblical endeavors, they they work together in unison when God says, no, you can't really do that if you're a believer. And then finally, number five, don't have a part with them. Meaning, in my mind, don't in any way have anything to do with it. I will endorse or enable sin in any way, shape, or form. I will love them, I'll talk to them, but in no way, shape, or form will I help that sin. You know, we have a solar system, and in the middle of our solar system is the sun. Its gravitational pull keeps all the planets in proper orbit. Without it at its center, the solar system would cease to exist. What is the center of your solar system? Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That should be the center our solar system. God is like the sun, and when He's at the center, everything functions right. But if your solar system is God, and another person's solar system is soccer, another person's solar system at the center of theirs is work, and another one, you know, it's sports, folks, those solar systems are going to collide. Only hang with people who have the same sun as you have the same center of their life. Number one, don't be childlike in your thinking about doctrine. Number two, just don't be seduced by unacceptable friendships. Number three, don't be partners with a God rejecter. Number four, don't be taken in by unbiblical lifestyles. Don't do it. The wise Paul is saying here to those, he said they're going to have all their reasoning, but their immoral lifestyles do not be taken in by them. Here's what it says in verse 7. Be not. Stop it. Stop being a partaker with them. And you can read the context before and after and you can get the sense of what we're talking about because of what we're going through. I won't do that. But the problem, what he's saying here is the people who have these kind of lifestyles that are unbiblical, he said, do not listen to their tempting, attractive, seductive, tantalizing their ideas, their concepts, their theories, their viewpoints. Don't listen to it. Now, misguided people will tell us, look, we need to be more pluralistic. We need to listen to everybody's viewpoint. Uh, no. Exactly the opposite, actually, is truth. Here's what God said in Proverbs 19, verse 27. Cease. 
Where there means do not welcome. Don't even give it the time of day. Cease, my son. Speaking, Solomon speaking here from his heart to his son. Hear the instruction. Don't listen to anybody who would tell you to err from the words of knowledge. If someone is saying something unbiblical, do not even listen to them. Don't even, don't even give them the time of day. Friends, you know, none of us can be a good soul winner for Christ. You cannot have a good gospel conversation if you let them control the conversation. Over these years of ministry, many a time we've had a wonderful gospel conversation with someone. And almost every time, like the woman at the well who spoke to Jesus, I mean, within seconds, she had a, she had a reason why she wasn't a believer in, you know, Jehovah God. And no matter who you talk to, there's going to be somebody who's going to say, oh, I had a bad experience at church. Or, oh, you know, I don't believe in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody has a reason. It makes them feel good. They love their little reasoning, and that's what they kind of keeps their guilt pangs away a little bit. But do not be taken in by that. If someone gives you a reason, don't go down that rabbit hole. The best way to do it is to say, you know, I would love to talk about that, but right now, I would like to ask you a question. You just keep deferring and going around. Do not let an unbeliever control the conversation because you will become a partaker of their lifestyle. Because I will tell you, they are wiser. One slothful man, <laughs> Solomon says, is wiser than seven men who can render a reason. I mean, they will confuse even seven wise men. Like, I don't know what it is. It is demonic. And they will confuse you, wrap you in a ball, and throw you away. God says just don't partake of it. I think we partake of it, number one, if we live their lifestyle. Number two, I think we partake of it if we encourage their sin in any way. Now, I am not saying we should be unloving to anybody. Everybody deserves our love and our kindness. Let me say that again. Everybody deserves our love and our kindness. Even the enemies of the gospel. Jesus said, give them a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. And I will not, I will not be disloyal to my Savior in no way, shape, or form. I will love you. I'll give you a cup of cold water. But do not ask me to be disloyal to what I know the Bible teaches. I will go as far as I can. Do not be childlike. Do not be seduced, do not be partners, do not be taken in. And then finally this morning, do not be misled by all the isms in the world. Just stop it. Folks, and if there's a truth that needs to be on the forefront of the evangelical church, it's this one. Be not carried away with divers and strange doctrines. Stop it. Stop listening to it. Stop investigating on the internet and all this stuff. Stop it. Don't go there. You are not smart enough. I'm not smart enough to figure out all their ins and outs. There are certain people that can. Pastor Mike can. I can't. You can't. Do not be carried about with divers and strange doctrines. It is good thing that your heart be established. With grace. You don't need trash. Grace is what you need. 
not with meat. I mean, who cares about what meat you eat, what meat you don't eat, when you can eat it, on this Friday, fish on Friday, all that stuff. Come on. What a bunch of hooey. Which, that's in the Greek, which have not profited them. What kind of a little beanie you put on your head, what kind of a hijab you put on, how long, how big, how, what color, what, oh my goodness, how ridiculous. It is not good, he said. Your heart won't be established. That won't help your heart. It won't help your marriage. It won't help anything. Nobody gets profited from that, especially when you give yourself to these divers and strange doctrine. Don't be carried about. Interesting phrase. It is the word to be swept along with a river. And it is a river out there. It is a river. I mean, there are thousands of denominations and religions. It is a river, and it is sweeping people, and especially young people. They're being swept off into secularism and every kind of a crazy thing. They are very worried this year, and here in our part of California, because of all the snow melt that people are going to be swept away. I've already read about several sad who lost their life on the American River. Do not be swept away. If you put your foot in that stream, I mean, it's so cold, it is so brisk, it is so swift, you'll be swept under. Tie yourself to the dock, man. Get the, get the, and tie yourself to the church. Don't get in that wicked river. It is going to sweep you downstream. It is diverse. Interesting word. It is actually the word for looking at a mosaic or looking at marble and all the little beautiful veins that make it so beautiful that you like on your kitchen cabinets and on your floors. I mean, it's just uh, multifaceted. He said, it may look pretty, but he said, it's not going to be good for your spiritual walk. It is too many colored. It's a mosaic. And we're not talking about people of different backgrounds or languages or countries. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about doctrine here, strange doctrine that comes out of that. The word strange there is the word xenos. You've heard the word recently xenophobia, right? Remember back when Mrs. Clinton was running, she condemned the misogynist and xenophobics. I was like, whatever it is, it sounds bad. And then I looked it up and thought, oh, well, I don't think she's right there. Xenophobia means a fear of strangers or a fear of foreigners. Actually, the word means foreign. He said, whoever the writer of the human author of Hebrew said, look, do not allow all this foreign garbage to take like a sewer, like a stream, Sweep away your mind, your wife, your children. Don't do it. Folks, we have a sewer of false foreign doctrine that is sweeping away people from the church. I mean, people leaving in droves, getting in stuff that are just terrible. One of them is Islam. Islam is one of the world's fastest growing religions. It's estimated there's 2 billion followers of Islam, Muslims in the world, and there are close to 6 million. Actually, this stat's a few years old. Over 6 million converts in America. Now, folks, this is a sad situation. Because these precious people, and I say that, they are precious people. 
They are, it's such a sad situation because they never know if they've pleased Allah enough. How do they know if they've pleased Allah enough? They gotta pray a certain amount, they gotta do this, gotta wear this, gotta eat this. How crazy to be in a situation where you never know if you're okay with God. It's a fear based religion. And God said, you need a faith that's based on the grace of God. And then your heart will be established. It will bless your marriage, your family. He said, don't go there to that kind of stuff. He said, it has never profited anyone, that strange doctrine. It doesn't result in more holiness, not at all. It never results in more humility, more joy, more peace in life. It never does, and it never will. They say, oh, they're good people. Well, yes, I mean, they might have some good moral ethics, but for them personally, it's so sad for them. They have no joy, no deep-down peace. How can we please Allah enough? Oh, how sad. Let me tell you how strong Paul is on this. And you may have never really seen it in this light, but look at Galatians 1 and verse 8. I mean, this one is going to... This one's going to make you think. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he's been talking about another gospel. Another gospel. Anything other than the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Here's what he said, verse 8. But though we... Now he said, if someday I come back here and I start telling you to worship Allah, he said... I want you just to turn around and walk out. Just walk out. Don't even give me the time of day. And I'm going to tell you, he's even going to get a little rougher than that. He said then, number two, if an angel comes from heaven. Okay. So, if an angel walks into the building, he's got his angelic passport validated. He's really from it. Paul didn't say, if one seems like an angel. He said, if an angel actually came. If an actual angel was given the power to speak, which they have in Scripture several times, if they did, and he stood up here and it was validated, he came from heaven. He was an angel. But if he preaches another gospel, don't listen to him. What? (laughs) Wow. Any other gospel than that which we have preached unto you. We didn't just share it with you and say, take your time to think about it. No, we preached it. The word is proclaimed. We proclaimed it. It's not if it's okay. No, it's you either get saved or not. It's That's the issue. If an angel comes here and says, you should start worshiping Muhammad. He said, let them be accursed. And you can't get any worse inflection than that. Let him be accursed. Are you sure this morning, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, are you sure what you believe? Are you sure whom you believe? Woman asked a woman, he said, what do you believe? She said, well, I believe what my church believes. So then, what does your church believe? Well, my church believes what I believe. Well, what do you 
And your church believes that. Oh, we believe alike. <laughs> and there you go. That's just about what we hear anymore. Many, many people have no idea what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Now, I issue a caution here. I know, and there'll be some people that might take offense to my boldness here this morning. To all that pastor, he's kind of narrow-minded. Well, frankly, folks, I would want my pastor to be a narrow-minded, Bible-believing person. I want my doctor to be narrow-minded. Amen? Amen. <laughs> don't you want your doctor to be narrow-minded? I mean, you don't want him to say, I don't know, your liver, your stomach, your appendix. I don't know. We're just going to get inside take something out. I know. I want you to know before you get in there, okay? No, no diving in. When you get on an airplane, do you want a narrow-minded pilot? Look, I want to go where we're going. And when you get there, I don't want you to just land in some field. I want you on the right on the runway. My banker, I want him narrow-minded. Yeah, I want all my money, and I want it taken care of. Isn't it amazing, though, when it comes to faith, when it deals with our eternal soul, our destiny forever, somebody says, ah, whatever floats your boat. Now, folks, let me just give it as clean and as simple as it gets in the next few moments. Listen closely. The way to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life is to repent. So what is repentance? I know it's a word that's not used today. It's strange enough, not even used in the church. Crazy. But repentance just means to have a change of mind. It means to change your, and that's a simple definition, but it is a change of mind about sin, about all the junk, all the beliefs of the world. Just, that's it, I'm done. At the same sense, it's a change of mind about Jesus. It's a turning your back on the world, and it's a turning face forward to Jesus. It's just simply saying, yes. Yes. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross, I cling. Jesus, friend, is not the best way to heaven. He is the only. Peter said it, neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name given among, under heaven, given among men, whereby or how you can be saved. Our heads are bowed this morning. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at the Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.